On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about everyone's three favorite letters. L, R, T. I know, it's sorry for the production value. Uh, yeah, LRT, back in the headlines, the committee that was struck to look at what to do with the billion dollars that Hamilton was supposed to have has said, yeah, LRT. Uh, what, are we happy about this? Or are we saying, no, enough? Let's be done with it. Well, we'll we'll discuss that one. We're also going to be chatting about what churches are doing on Easter weekend since they can't have church. What do you do when people can't gather on the one day of the year that more people than ever go to church? And we will be talking about the most famous, probably, hockey puck that has been missing for over 50 years. The holder, allegedly, has now passed away. What does this mean? Stick around to find out what puck that is. You'll enjoy the conversation. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Guess what's back in the news today? Just when you thought that coronavirus had killed off anything discussion-wise, anything other topic-wise, anything other than coronavirus as a thing that we would talk about in the city, guess what's back? Ready? Some of you, th- this could cause some of you to have an aneurysm. L. R-T. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. L-R-T. Back in the headlines. Who knew? L-R-T is our version of Glenn Close's character from Fatal Attraction. No matter how many times you try to kill it off, it will not die and comes back to life. L-R-T. Back in the news, the uh, committee, the five-person panel that was struck by the Ford government to look into what to do, what would be the best option, what would be the thing to do with the billion dollars that was earmarked for LRT, has come back with a suggestion that, well, the best thing would be eh, LRT or maybe BRT. I go for BLT, but they didn't ask me to be on the panel. Bus rapid transit, bus light transit, light rapid transit, some kind of, what are they calling the word here? Some kind of... um, High, I can't remember the, the word now, but they, they, they want a they want a, a something bigger than just buses running in the city of Hamilton. This is what the the panel has come back with. So I'm coming to you today because, you know, you haven't heard LRT mentioned for, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks, which is probably the longest we've gone without mentioning LRT in years. And I want to know if you're ready to fire up the discussion once again and begin this debate once again. We thought we maybe had dealt with it. Now, some people would say dealt with it for bad because we got rid of it. Others would say, finally, we dealt with it. That's a good thing. One way or another, LRT now seems inevitably back on the table, back on the front burner. Are you ready? Are you excited about launching this discussion again? And maybe you are, maybe simply anything other than coronavirus is fine by you. Or maybe you have reached a point where just hearing LRT causes you to go into convulsions and start sucking your thumb and curling up in a fetal position in the corner because, you know, it's like the stadium or like the Red Hill Creek Expressway or like other things that we just debate endlessly forever and seemingly go in circles and... That's, I mean, does that not sound like exactly what's happened here? We have gone in a gigantic circle and now we're back to 
the start? I don't know if we're back at the start. We're back at some place. Are you excited to begin this conversation again? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I want to hear from you. When you hear that LRT is back in business, in a manner of speaking, we don't know what's going to happen yet, but that this is now going to be a topic of discussion again, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. We do still have this coronavirus thing going on, but that this is the proposal, that this is in the future at some point, this is what we should be doing. Is this something that has you excited and optimistic and looking forward to this discussion launching again, or are you at the point now where you say, oh, for heaven's sakes, please, enough is enough. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Let me go to line one. I think it's, is it Jason? It is Jason. Jason, how are you tonight? Well, I was better until a couple minutes ago when I was listening to your show. <laughs> so you're, you're not a fan of LRT coming back? Well, so I'm wondering if these people even live in Hamilton. Uh, they do. M- um, I believe all or most do. So they're, they're ab- it's not people who have just been parachuted in. That's that's for sure. Okay, let me ask if they've driven down Burlington Street or Cannon or Aberdeen Avenue in the past year. And if so, I'm thinking that the billion dollars could be better served fixing the current infrastructure that we have now. That is, uh, so I don't know, obviously, Jason. I, I know it's a rhetorical question. And to answer yeah. your question, I don't know what their process was exactly. I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about it in the days ahead. The report just was released this afternoon, so they haven't even had a chance, as I understand it, to answer any kind of questions. But those are, I think those are fair questions to ask. Is I would think so. Well, is not just about the LRT, but is on balance. Is the balance of what is more important in this? And, and Jason, I think that's a fair question. It is. And I, I've lived in the city my whole life, basically, and I'm 50 now. And uh, we have some of the best traffic of any city I've ever been in in the world. And I've done a little bit of traveling, I was fortunate enough. But uh, I don't really understand even, I live downtown, and I don't even understand the nature of the conversation. When they start bringing up LRT, it it boggles my mind. So yes, I am going to be sucking my thumb and curling up. (laughs) Jason, I appreciate the call. I hope hope you stay well and that the the fetal position doesn't last too, too long for you. Oh, uh, I might be good for 12 weeks anyway, so... (laughs) Right on. Jason, thanks, thanks for, for the call. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. L-R-T. Back in the news today because the panel that was struck by the provincial government to recommend what to do with the billion dollars that has been earmarked for some kind of infrastructure in the city, tr- probably transit infrastructure. The panel has come back and just this afternoon, we haven't heard from the panel much yet, if at all, but the panel came back and has said, LRT or BRT would be the option, something that's a higher end form of transportation in the city. This, of course, I guarantee you causing some people like Jason just before the break, a caller to just about lose his mind and others will probably be very excited about this. I know on social media, a lot of the people who are the loud yellers about this, very excited about this. Returning perhaps into the discussion. 905 645 3221 or star 9900. Are you thrilled that LRT is now back on the front burner? Or are you just, oh, really? Come on. Enough. We dealt with this. Which side are you falling on? Fred joins me now. Fred, how are you today? 
Not bad, Scott. Good to hear from you. You too, Fred. What, where are you falling on this one? I'm falling on this. Realistic, lonesome trouble. <laughs> it is... Um, here's the thing, Fred, that I, I, I find a little unsettling. Not unsettling. I don't know what the word is about this. We are right now going through absolutely unquestionably the greatest economic crisis of our lifetimes. I don't know about everyone listening's lifetime. Some people were alive in the war. Uh, maybe some, if you're old enough, were alive even for some of the Great Depression. But for 95% of the people, this is the greatest economic crisis we've had. Governments are bleeding money right now. Yes. The thing is this, it gets me, Scott. I was taught two words, need or want. It's kind of hard to stay away from want and what you need. Well, especially and now. I'm shocked, especially and now. I'm shocked. A lot of people financially don't have enough money for groceries or to pay their rent on the first of the month. I, I'm shocked. Like, where are these people living? Up a tree? It's, uh, Fred, it, the, the economy of this, the economics, thank you for the call, by the way. The economics of this become very difficult because, as I was just saying, we're so far in deficit now. We're so far in debt. The province and the country are spending so much money to, and look, I, I'm not arguing against it right now. We need a bailout program right now to keep people afloat. But we are hundreds of billions of dollars now that we are overspending from what we anticipated. I do find it hard to believe that they're going to come and say, yeah, yeah, sure, let's go ahead with the LRT. I have a feeling that when this whole thing is getting a little more under control, what's going to be said is all discretionary spending, all capital spending that is not absolutely essential, sorry, times have changed, it's gone, which makes this whole process seem like a complete waste of time, quite frankly, but who knows? Bill is on with us. Bill, how are you tonight? Oh, that was a good song, Elvis. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful song, yeah. Well, the song that we try to balance the song with the <laughs> with how people are feeling about this. Where are you on the LRT? Really excited it's back or just at the end of your oh, rope? No, no, no. I'm not excited. I was never for it. And uh, what's the matter with the people's heads in this city, for God's sake? The way things are going nowadays, now, those times, you know? And, I uh, like Fred just spoke there. <laughs> same, I have the same... Thought as he does. Do you do you share my opinion that when this whole thing starts to get sorted out, that the money is not going to be there anyway? So it's kind of a moot point. No, I don't think so, sir. I don't think it will. And uh, maybe they should try it in fifty years from now or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, we'll see what happens, Bill. Thank you for the call. I appreciate Thank it, you, sir. Uh, let me go to uh, Roger. While I'm getting Roger on nine zero five six four five three two two one or star nine nine zero zero, if you want to have your say. Roger, how are you tonight? Oh, not too bad. I'm good. Where are you on this one? Are you excited LRT is back in the mix, or are you done with LRT? I'm done with LRT. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm uh, oh, not from the Hamilton area, but I'd just like to weigh in with the, uh, oh, so many uh, people uh, that's out of work and all the small businesses being shut down. I think the uh, billion dollars that was allotted for the LRT would be... Uh, much more well spent if it went to, uh, to the families or to the businesses that's uh, involved. And we need the economy to come back before we need an LRT, I uh, think. so. Roger, th- thank you. It's an interesting point. I appreciate your call. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, look, we, we just have so much money pouring out of government right now 
that maybe I'm being naive somehow. Maybe at the end of this, governments are going to say, hey, we're already in it for $150 billion. What's another billion? But I'm not positive that is going to that is going to be the case. Is it Cheater or Dieter? Teeter. Teeter. There you go. Teeter. Sorry, I had I couldn't tell what what the name was. How are you tonight? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Where do you stand on this one? Uh, I don't want to hear any more about LRT. <laughs> well, that makes I, it a clean sweep. Yeah. I, I remember getting on the old uh, uh, railroad cars and going up and down Barton Street, clickety-clack, the whole bit. And uh, I'm 78 years old. All right. Well, uh, yeah, you know what? It's, uh, I, I'm, well, so far every caller has said the same as you have. Now, maybe that's who our callers are. Maybe that's who our listeners are, but it's, there doesn't, I, I know in certain places of this city, there are people who are very excited about LRT coming back. They're just not speaking up right now. Teeter, thank you for the call. I got to take a break. I well, really appreciate uh, it. Sorry, go ahead really quickly. But I wish that uh, they would spend that billion dollars on low-income housing. Oh, there you go. See, uh, now, here's the thing. And thank you again, Teeter, for the call. Everybody these days is going to have something that they will point to where that where more money should go. And we are heading, we're already in a tough, tough, tough spot. But we're heading into an even tougher in some ways spot because... Now, all the discretionary stuff, all the money that people are going to be thinking should go to the here or should go to there, anyone who doesn't get the money is going to be outraged. And I can tell you what, if the LRT is canceled after the another committee has come back, there's going to be more outrage. I just warn you, we are never, ever, ever going to hear the end of LRT. Whether it's built or whether it's not, brace yourself because this LRT is never, ever, 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 ever going away. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We bring in David Haskell, who is an associate professor of religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. Love having David on. David, thanks for doing this today. Oh, no trouble. I'm happy to be here. We, um, I think we've seen a lot of churches already over the last three or four or five weeks doing what a whole lot of businesses and families and other groups are doing right now, and that is uh, finding a way to try and bridge that online gap, right? They're, they're, they're trying to do church on the computer, on the internet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, is, that, is it effective? Is it working? Well, it's never as effective as meeting in a community. I mean, the, the interesting thing about, um, well, community in a religious sense overall is that it seems to be one of the powerful things that makes religion uh, the force that it is for good. And uh, by that, Scott, what I mean is if you look at um, the studies that have been done, you'll notice that people who attend services regularly face-to-face, they, they have stronger relationships, and those stronger relationships lead to better outcomes related to less stress in their life, uh, more pro-social behavior because they're with people who uh, are agreeing it's a good idea to volunteer. They'll volunteer more. So they actually reinforce good behavior with one another. But what we don't have is a lot of data that people who meet online in a religious setting actually do the same thing. So it's a good holdover, but I'd be afraid of what would happen to the the good that you see coming from these religious communities uh, in the long run if it were all an online uh, uh, adventure. 
it's an interesting idea about the whole the, the community thing, and I assume it's the same uh, for for Jews at the synagogue or Muslims at the mosque. It's a it's a it's a faith community thing. You are um, you are you are with people who share a common viewpoint. I'm assuming that that's a big part of it. That you know you're you go through the rest of your week and you're with people who may or may not agree with you. Here you get to sort of talk to kindred spirits. Yeah, yeah, and and again, that's we know from the Christian context for sure that that's a powerful motivator. So we know that belief drives behavior. So when when that belief is regularly reinforced, and within the Christian community, one of the major tenets of the faith is to do unto others. So we see that actually translate into behavior. So you get someone who attended, attends uh, religious services regularly, they give to charity three times more than the average Canadian, and they volunteer twice as much as, as average Canadians. And they also get 40% more hours when they're volunteering. And again, that goes directly to what they hear on a day or a week-by-week basis. It's reinforcing that behavior. So, so having that reinforcement tool by going to a service weekly, then it's pretty important. Now, you mentioned the other, other services. Uh, again, it, it, doctrine really is important. So it depends what's being said um, in those particular communities. If, um, if the community is definitely emphasizing going out and doing that kind of work, which is sort of the quintessential thing within Christianity. One of the things that made it really different was this notion of helping those that you don't even like. Um, but if that's being said at other places, then, then it would probably have a similar effect. Do we have any idea for the churches that are now trying? Because not like uh, there's a lot of churches that had no inclination or thought to do online churches, churching, until suddenly they had to, and they're scrambling to make it work. Do we have any idea if it's working, if it's resonating? Uh, I think it's too early for anybody to have studied it, but but from from a different perspective. So uh, what I've been thinking about with this is, um, is this, what do we look at historically as to what Christians have done in a time of pandemic or plague? And is the Christian church doing what it would typically do? So if you look back like in early Rome, if you look back like in uh, 165 AD and one or 251 AD, there were plagues in Rome. And um, what was interesting was that the Christians were doing this thing that was brand new. When everybody else who could was running to the countryside, the Christians were actually staying in the urban centers and they were tending to not only their own sick, but to the, the pagans who were also sick and instead of abandoning them. So I, I was thinking about the historical precedent and wondering if that was going on here. So I just took a quick look on websites of churches just in my city of Cambridge, and I was pleased to see that there is really outstanding outreach going on right now. Um, the churches that I looked at were still holding their their what would be a, the equivalent of a, a soup kitchen, but they're doing bag lunches at the door. They're trying to do it in a way that is still in compliance with the regulations the government has put down. So the Christians aren't abdicating. When you talk about the back in Rome with the plague and going towards it, but now we've got a lot of churches, and, and, and I mean, in the States, we've seen huge outcry about churches carrying on with their services. So if you are running, if you're not running to the countryside, as you describe it now, you're being criticized. What, what, is, the, what is the responsibility? What's the right answer? Well, I think the right answer is Christians have always tried to make sure that they didn't make the problem worse. And uh, we've got to be honest that those, the, the communities, which are few, by the way, I mean, if you look relative to the communities that aren't 
doing the negative stuff. So the negative stuff is not practicing social distance. So we've got churches in the U.S. that are, despite the best evidence that social distancing will actually flatten the curve or reduce the spread of the virus, they still are meeting. And that's wrong. Uh, That's not in line with what Christians have done historically. Christians historically have been doing what they could to lessen the effect of a pandemic. Let me jump in for a second, David, because i got to take a very quick break here. We're going to come back with David Haskell from Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. David, here's where this thing becomes really challenging, I think, that if you are someone who th- says, okay, you know what, I go, I want to go with the family to church on Easter Sunday, you clearly can't do that now. How right. do you find those online sites? Because it's not even like television where you can just flip the channels and land on something. How do you know where to look? How do you find the church? It, it, well, the churches have been really very good about uh, making their presence on the Internet known. Uh, again, I was just uh, heading out today for a walk uh, around uh, the neighborhood. We've got some local churches, and I was uh, pleased to see that most of them had, even on their, their billboards, their signs out front, they said, we're doing a service online, here's where you can reach us, they give you the URL. Uh, then when you go online as well, the churches will tell you what time their Sunday service is going to be. If you want to live stream it, you can do it there. Um, at the uh, headquarters of some of the churches, like the Anglican Church, um, they also are giving out information. So if anybody has, an, has the Internet, uh, they can really just type in the name of their favorite church and see what's going on. And those that are streaming online are, are letting it be known when it's happening and how to join, and, and with pretty good instructions, too. Do you think that's going to happen, though? Because going on Easter Sunday morning is a, is a, is a it's an activity that you do. It's an intentional thing to get up and get dressed and go. If you don't have that to do, do you think people are going to do it? You know, I think that more people are actually just doing services in their home. What, what you're seeing is, well, first of all, people who are actually inclined to go regularly— this isn't going to stop them, whether they're going to per, uh, pursue it online or pursue it in their home. And what I've been seeing a lot in uh, just communications that I have with people who are in faith communities, I'm hearing that uh, they are taking the opportunity to do almost like homeschooling. So in the same way that parents are right now homeschooling their kids, those people who have a larger family are doing a homeschool version of a church service in their house. And for a lot of them, they say it's reinvigorated their faith. Now, when I say a lot, I'm not talking, I haven't done a study on this. I've just been reaching out, as I often do, because this is my research area, and finding out, well, what's going on? What are you doing? And I'm hearing from pastors that they've got people in their churches who are taking the opportunity to do a home service. And uh, for a lot of them, it's it's reigniting what for them was uh, an interest in Bible study or prayer, because they're doing it themselves in their home with their kids. We have heard from a lot of different companies and businesses and experts and analysts and everyone else that what we're going through right now in the broader society is going to change how people work and behave and do everything in the future. There's a lot of people who have discovered that, you know what, some of this work that we thought had to be done in the office can be done at home, and that's going to change how we do things going forward. Is that same thing going to happen with churches that now, because a lot of people have followed I'm talking about regulars who have now been getting used to over the last month or two following church online who just say, I'm just going to keep doing that. That's very convenient. Well, definitely there's going to be a few people who do that. It's, I mean, it'd be crazy to say that that wouldn't happen. 
But church is a, a fairly unique experience that the people who go tend to want to go because of the face-to-face interaction, and you just can't get that online. And the people who are remaining as regular churchgoers, and, you know, some it depends on which survey you look at. We're talking maybe 15 to 19 percent of Canadians. Uh, 19 might be high now. Those people are a, a very hardcore group of believers, and part of the satisfaction that, that they get, or one of the largest areas of satisfaction, is meeting in community, face-to-face, that, that they, they have friends there. When you ask people why they're attending, they say because the people are friendly. And it's hard to get a sense of friendliness hmm. online. So I think that it'll still be a draw. You know, it, it does seem to me a bit of a, an ironic twist that most businesses are trying to be so good on their online presence right now that you would say, I'm just going to stay doing that. I'm almost getting the sense that some of the churches are going, we want to be good enough, but not so good that, <laughs> that we'll convince you to do this full time. Right. We'll be good right. enough to keep you interested, but we're not that good that you want to stay home. Yeah, and there might be some other side effects, um, such as when, when you have to put something online, uh, as, a, as a professor, I know that when I'm going to be putting something online, and I know that it will be uh, available later for streaming too, I take a little bit more time to work on it. I don't want to just go off the top of my head. So there may be a side benefit that the, the priests and the pastors who are doing these online services are going to take a little bit more time to craft their sermons or to craft what's going on. Uh, and everybody knows that if you've been in a job for a long time, sometimes you can do it pretty easily and you can almost phone it in. Well, now that people are actually having to phone it in, air quotes there on what it means to phone in today, maybe they'll, in the religious sense, they'll take some more time because they know, well, people are really going to watch this. They might watch it into the future. I better make sure that it's completely coherent and compelling. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So I read some uh, sad news today that last night, at some point last night, Pat Stapleton passed away. And if you are, I don't know, under 30, the name probably doesn't mean much to you. But if you are of a certain age, uh, you will know about the guy they called Whitey, who was a very, he wasn't a big guy. He was a small defenseman, but he was a very, very good defenseman. Played many years in the NHL, Chicago, and I can't remember who else. Uh, But maybe more importantly, probably more importantly for many people, he was a key player on the 1972 Canada-Russia Summit Series. The one that ended with Paul Henderson scoring the goal. That is, I think by... Well, we can have a debate about which goal, which moment, which game was bigger in hockey history, Miracle on Ice or the Summit Series. North of the border, I think most people would say that that was the most important game, the most important goal. Well, this is where his story gets really interesting. Because for years there have been rumors that after Paul Henderson scored, and when the entire Canadian team jumped over the boards, you used to be able to do that back then, uh, jumped over the boards to celebrate in a big mauling scrum around the net, there were rumors that Pat Stapleton picked up the puck that Trechek had shot out of the net and tucked it into his glove and then brought it home and has, since 1972, had this puck in his house without telling anyone, until very recently, because the rumors had been there for a while. But it was about five years ago that he seemed to acknowledge that, yes, the story was in fact true. He had the puck. Well, he's now passed away, so what has happened to this puck? What is going to happen to this puck? Well, there is one man on this planet who knows more about hockey 
history and memorabilia and stuff like this than anyone else. His name is Phil Pritchard. He's a Burlington guy. Uh, you know him because he's the guy with the white gloves who carries the Stanley Cup out to center ice when it's presented every year. But he is also the guy who helps run. He's a curator of the Hockey Hall of Fame and Museum, and he joins us now. Phil, how are you today? I'm great. Yourself, Scott? I am great. Thanks for joining us. I mean, I guess, you know, you're, you're, you're probably not going to have the summer you expect, so you're just sitting at home now without t- going all over the world with the Cup. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, we got a lot bigger issues than <laughs> yeah, that's true. what is going on on the ice or the ball diamond or anywhere else. But it's, we're fortunate we're safe and sound here with my family. Oh, and that's I, good. hopefully everyone else is, including new listeners. Well, that's good, and thank you. Um, so do you, do you, and when I say you, I mean the Hall of Fame, do you guys have the puck? No, we do not. Uh, I've talked to Pat over the years, and it, it's funny when you were just describing it there, if you watch the video, you see all the guys hug uh, Henderson and Cornway and the puck is in the corner and you see a player skate over to it and bends down and looks like he's picking it up. I mean, obviously the video then is a lot different than now, but it, it seems like it's Pat Stapleton. Uh, and I've talked to him in the past about it and he said he's used it on his farm. His son used to practice with it and everything. And <laughs> he said all types of stories, uh, but he promised us once, uh, Bill Hay used to be our CEO who used to play with Pat in Chicago. And he said, once he's done with it, we would have it at the hall. I don't know what that ever meant, but he always said it would find its way to the hall one day. What is your, so with, with all the stories, cause you're right, he has certainly told a variety of stories and I think he's honestly, Pat Stapleton was known as a, as a joker, as a practical joker on his team and as a prankster. And I, I think he's just been for a lot of time having a lot of fun with a lot of people by making up all kinds of different stories. What is your level of confidence that he really does have that puck? Well, I mean, I'm going by the video. I mean, it certainly looks like that and I know there's a lot of things with video, how you can tell things now, but exactly what you said there, Scott, he's, he's played a lot of different stories along the years of where it's been and if he has it and if he doesn't. So whether he plays that down or sometimes, but he did, according to uh, Bill Hay, our old CEO, they had a talk once and Pat said he had it. And, but the the funny thing is uh, his son who went on to play in the NHL as well, used to play, uh, play against the old barn and at their house at the Stapleton house and used to shoot a bunch of pucks, whether he shot one of them or not is who knows. I mean, I guess Pat would know and, and maybe Tim. Well, that's, uh, this is where the story gets really, uh, I would think interesting for, uh, you know, someone like you who is not only a historian and a curator, but someone who part of your job is establishing if things are legit or true or not. And I mean, people will remember recently we've, you and I have talked and I know that, um, on hockey, uh, what was the hockey day? Not Rogers, um, hometown hockey. They did the story a little while ago about the Hamilton Tigers sweater. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, you're, you're someone who will ultimately look at that sweater and decide or help decide if it's legit. But we go back to the puck. Uh, there were no, from what I've seen in the videos of that series, there were no markings, no logos, no, no nothing. It was black pucks that were used in Russia, just a plain old black puck. So even if you had someone from the Stapleton family walk up to you tomorrow and say, Pat said in the will he wanted you to have this, how do you possibly go about confirming or proving that that really was the puck? Yeah, that, that, that's the tough one, Scott, because 
and I, we'd love to use Pat as an example that Pat has said this over years that he has it, but he's also had a whole bunch of other stories as you were just talking about. So on one hand, he's being positive and saying he has it, but then on the other, he'll say a different story sometimes. So it, it kind of plays against one another, puts it in a hard spot to identify whether it's the actual puck or not. I, I think from the Hockey Hall of Fame viewpoint, we would probably put it on display and say, and this is the puck Pat Stapleton said he received after the 72 series and, and kind of leave it at that instead of saying it's the definitive puck. Uh, maybe a stupid question, but the pucks that are here uh, today, um, I mean, all the NHL pucks are made by the same company, right? Right. So, and I don't even know what company that is, but there would be some sort of identifiable marking. You could tell if, you may not be able to tell if it was an NHL puck 100%, but you could tell at least if it was made by the company that makes NHL pucks, so you could whittle it down. Right. Over there, do we know, have you ever seen one of the pucks that was used in the Moscow part of that series to know if there's, what they look like or if they have anything else on there that you could at least whittle it down to know if the puck he showed you or his family would give you is possibly legit? It's a great statement what you say there, Scott, because obviously four games were in Canada and they used different pucks there than they did in Russia for the last four games. I believe at the time, and we do have some pucks from the 72 series, our curator at the time, Lefty Reed, went over and followed Canada and Russia throughout the eight games. So we do have some. And I believe they're a Czech puck that was made in Czechoslovakia at the time that were uh, used in Russia. So there's at least a chance that it, 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 there's a chance to whittle down the historical accuracy, even if you can't necessarily say for sure. Exactly. And, and like I said, we'd probably put it's the puck that Pat Stapleton claims is the same 1972 game eight puck that Paul Henderson scored with. To the best of your knowledge, and you would be the guy that would know this, has anyone else ever claimed to have that Paul Henderson puck? Never. never. No one's ever said another thing. It's been only, it's been the Pat Stapleton story right from uh, when everyone started hearing about it. And if someone came forward now, like this is part of I always find interesting when people, and I'm not saying anyone stole this puck, but if anyone ever steals memorabilia, you've only got so much you can do with it. You can hide it or you can try and sell it, but then you're going to get caught. And if you keep it for too long, then proving it becomes impossible and it loses its value. I'm just, if someone did have the puck and had never said anything, it would essentially be worthless now, wouldn't it? Because you couldn't prove it. Yeah, it would be, uh, I mean, our side as the hockey detective would have to go to them and say, unfortunately, your story doesn't add up and it's been 40 years or whatever it has been. And it's just another item. This is not the only, and I find this fascinating and, and certainly uh, no fingers of blame being pointed in any way, but I find it fascinating that this is hardly the only really historic piece of whether it's a puck or something else of hockey memorabilia that is missing or you guys don't know where it is. And I'm, I'm always surprised by that because Phil, it always assume, I, I always assume that if something massive was to happen, somebody would immediately run to you guys and say here. But I mean, for example, the, the puck from Gretzky to Lemieux in the 87 Canada Cup, you guys don't have that. No, we do not. <laughs> Which... uh, a few years ago when uh, Patrick Kane scored against Philadelphia and Chicago won the cup for the first time in 2010, that puck went missing right after the game. Not to be found by you guys? No, we don't have it. Uh, the NHL doesn't have it, and they collect all the pucks. And That puck went in, if you remember, that went in at overtime 
Right, the goal that nobody knew he'd scored. Exactly, and he skated on and celebrated, and everyone didn't know what was going on. Well, they all went to that other end, and the puck sat there, and we don't know what happened. The, the sad story of the 87 one, I, I, I talked to a bunch of people a few years ago on the anniversary, and the, it, it appears that the puck that Gretzky passed to Lemieux and that ended up in the net may now be in a coffin buried in Brantford. Which, oh, um, that's right. yes. which, yeah. which, and you're, you're probably not digging that one up at no, this point. Yes, so it's I, gone. I think you and I talked about We did. That yes, we did. Yeah. Which is, so how does this happen though? Because again, I, I would think that most people with, a, 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 a something that is immediately evident is a big, big deal would say, Hey, this should go to the hall of fame. Yeah, you would think so. But in, in the heat of the celebration, and we go back to the 72 one, it was a huge moment. I mean, that series started as it was going to be a one-sided tournament, which, as we all know who watched it, it wasn't that way at all. It came down to the last, just over last minute. And Canada scores, and everybody went nuts. And it was it was a lot more than just the puck. It was Canada won. Sure. And I- so that puck gets kind of becomes secondary or thirdly in the in part of the celebration. So how much of your time then working with the hall, because uh, again, for people who don't know, you don't just give the Stanley Cup, although that's a very cool no. thing to do, but how much of your time is spent searching for items that uh, would be of historical importance? Uh, well, we're always on the lookout, Scott. Obviously, I mean, you and I have spoken about the Tigers jerseys over the years. There's the Toronto arenas. There's a, a lot of older stuff like that, but we're always out there because hockey history is happening all the time and following along things. The great thing, as you said, is once we get it, we try and match it somehow, whether it's through photos, video, or, or the authentication of whatever the artifact is. There are a lot, though, of, and there's nothing wrong with what they're doing, but there's a lot of big-time collectors out there. I was watching a couple of videos today of, is his name Mike Wilson, the guy in Toronto? Yeah. Uh, he has a whole basement that's got, like, thousands of pieces of leaf memorabilia. Are you guys in the Hall of Fame in competition with collectors to get stuff? Uh, I don't know if competition is the right word. They are, they are buying everything for their purpose and ultimate investment, I guess. From the hall point of view, we're, we're there to preserve the, this national sport of Canada, which is hockey. So I don't know if we're competitors of us, them. I, uh, I think we might be competitors, or they might be competitors of us, or vice versa, because if something comes to us, they would have wanted to buy it maybe. But let's say, let's go back to this, the Henderson puck that Pat Stapleton may or may not have had. Right. Um, you guys obviously would love to have that in the Hall of Fame, but ultimately at the end, if an, if a collector had it and you could establish that that was the legitimate puck and you knew where it was and you knew that puck existed, ultimately does it matter to you that it's in the Hall or that at least you know where it was? Well, uh, I'm going to answer it two ways. From the Hockey Hall of Fame point, we'd love to have it on display so everybody could view it. But from a hockey historian point of view, we're thrilled that it's still around and we know where it is. And hopefully one day it'll come to the Hall of Fame. What's the thing, and this puck is probably high on that list, but what is the thing or things that would be right at the top of your list of things that you would like to find that are, that are not around right now, but that you would really want to have come to the Hall? Well, for me personally, and I'm a Burlington resident, so the Hamilton Tigers play a huge role in in hockey history, but also are close to me. So, as you know, over the years, and I've told you left several times, we'd love to get a Tigers jersey. Mm-hmm. I mean, the story behind it is unbelievable. 
I would love to get some early Olympic stuff too, some early hockey tournaments back then when uh, Canada was first being introduced to the to hockey and the Olympics and that. And it's it's always special when you get old equipment as well out there. Are you still, uh, I don't know how many people know this, but the Hall of Fame, which is uh, people, have, I mean, probably many people, most people listening have visited, but that's only part of the, the space you have. You guys have like a giant warehouse as well that holds all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things. Are, are you a guy that still, after all these years, will have moments when you hold something in your own hands and are still blown away by the fact that you're holding this particular thing? I think every day, Scott, it's, it's amazing. There's a, in our curatorial staff, there's about five of us. And as we're going through the uh, collection or preserving it or conservative, you see something that you forget you have and you just go, wow, is this ever cool? And whoever is standing by you go, what, what is that? And you talk about it. And it's just, it's neat to be part of that, that we hold a small way in hockey history by preserving it. Uh, and I know you don't have every bit of uh, memorabilia or, or every artifact locked into your brain, but other than the Stanley Cup, because I, w- I know that's that's you know above and beyond. Take the Stanley Cup out of the mix. What would be the thing that is in the Hall's possession right now that if that if it went to auction, you think would be worth the most worth worth the most? Uh, boy, we have a, a Stanley Cup ring from the first year in 1893. I'm, I'm sure that would be a lot. We have a, a gold medal from the 1920 Olympics, the first time Canada was in the uh, Olympics for hockey and the first Winter Olympics was huh. on. They probably would. Uh, we have some early hockey card collections from 1910 and 11 that are pretty valuable in the world of collectors. It is. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. And I mean, I, I really... Um... Uh, and I think a lot of people do. I, I really hope this story, I hope Stapleton was telling s- uh, the nugget of truth in there somehow that this thing was not just a joke. Uh, although, you know, the, the idea that he had this puck and that his kids were playing with it and batting it around, and I think I read at one point that he said his dog was chewing on it. I don't even know what's left of your puck if if all this is true, but I, I, I somehow just hope there was a nugget of truth and you can get that into your hands somehow. Which would be great, but I think the neat thing about hockey in Canada, it's those stories that people just love, the passion that we have for hockey and and how it is, and, and Pat Stapleton is part of that. Just before I let you go, Phil, one question, completely unrelated to anything else we've asked. Uh, there there may not be a playoffs this year. We know that. We don't know what's going to happen yet. What happens on the Stanley Cup if there is no playoffs? Do you have, because every year the winner's names get etched onto the Cup, do is there just a, a mark that says no cup contested in 2020 or does nothing get put on there? Well, I mean, if you go back and this might be precedent setting, but in, in 1919, the Spanish flu went across uh, the world and it really hit North America. It was a pandemic then. And the Stanley Cup final did not get finished. Uh, Seattle was playing Montreal at the time and, and the players stopped playing because people were getting sick and ultimately players died from it. But that year, it just says 1919 series not completed. And that takes one of the full spaces that a team would have been in? Exactly. Wow, there you go. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us 
Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.